This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic in the margin of a book. Geraldine Brooks is an Australian-American author and journalist with six works of fiction and three nonfiction books. Among her fiction, People of the Book, Caleb's Crossing, and The Secret Chord were all New York Times bestsellers. Her first novel, Year of Wonders, about the Black Plague, is an international bestseller. And her novel, March, which imagines the absent Mr. March of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and his fight in the Civil War, it was awarded the 2006 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. And now Brooks has penned a new novel, Horse, which braids together the individual yet connected stories of Lexington, the greatest racehorse in American history. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's my conversation with Geraldine Brooks. The new novel, Horse, has a Geraldine Brooks style of braided stories, and I wonder if that's going to be a term coined in the future, like a Ken Burns effect. But I'm wondering, could you give our listeners a brief description of Horse? It is a braided novel, and it's set in three time periods, and the historical spine of the book is very closely based on the true story of the most remarkable racehorse of the 1850s and 60s, which was Lexington, who was not only the fastest horse in history up to that time, but also one of the bravest and kindly natured, and then went on to sire more champions than any other thoroughbred. So that's the spine. And then there's a contemporary thread which follows the horse's skeleton to where it ended up in the Smithsonian Institution. And the contemporary thread is about a scientist who studies the bones for their secrets of the horse's power and endurance, and an art historian who is drawn to the images of the horse that contain fascinating glimpses of the lives of the enslaved Black horsemen who were instrumental to the horse's success. And then there's a third strand that follows one of the paintings of the horse, which has a mysterious provenance, and it leads us into the roiling art world of post-World War II New York City and the rise of abstract expressionism. So when you have an effort like this, you have to research so many areas, you know, horse breeding, art history, the Civil War, slavery, natural history, racism, climate change, and erosion even. So is it difficult to arrive at a balance of what goes into the book and what must be left out? I always, always, always let the story tell me what I need to know, because it's no good to me to go out and do a whole bunch of research and then cram it into the narrative if the narrative doesn't need that particular direction. So I start knowing just a bit, and then as the story reveals itself to me, I realize what else I need to know, and then I go and look for that thing. So you say as the story reveals itself to you, and you know, with this Geraldine Brooks style book, you have the multiple story arcs. So do you write them independently and then braid them together? Or do you write and braid in the same order that the reader experiences them? It's a bit of a mixture. So what I'm doing is following the line of fact, because it was the fact that fascinated me in the beginning. So I started with just the story of the racehorse. 
So I start with that. And I knew that this horse had a very, very dramatic arc of career with lots of twists and turns and, you know, very dramatic events during the Civil War. So that's where I start. And then I realize that this story can't just be about a racehorse because of the role of the enslaved black horseman whose plundered skills built the success, not only of this horse, but of the thoroughbred industry in the antebellum period. And so then I have that area to look into, which is race. So it becomes a story of a racehorse and of race. And then I realize I can't leave that story in the past as if it's something over and done with because we are still living with the tremendously loud reverberations of race and injustice from that period even today. So then that comes into the contemporary story. And I always knew I was going to have a part of the story set at the Smithsonian because this is what I love. It's total catnip to me to have an excuse (laughs) to get up in people's business and see how they do their unusual work. And the support center of the Smithsonian Institution is a chamber of wonders, all kinds of extraordinary research going on there. So it was a great excuse to be there. But I had to also bring the reverberations of our racial story into the present narrative as well. And then the whole mysterious painting, that was something I hadn't anticipated at all. But here comes another fascinating character, pioneering feminist gallery owner called Martha Jackson, who supported the most radical contemporary artists of her time. And yet she owns a traditional oil painting of this horse, Lexington. And it's the only painting like that in her bequest to the Smithsonian. So why did she have that painting? And it's my understanding that you just got to imagine why she had it because... I tried to follow the line of fact. Why did Martha Jackson, who had Bridget Riley's and de Kooning's and Pollock's, have this Thomas J. Scott, very traditional little oil painting in her collection? And the line of fact didn't reveal the answer. So then the novelist's imagination has to come up with an answer. Uh, uh, maybe, possibly, this is why. And it turned out that her mother was a famous competitive equestrian jumper who died in the most trivial horse accident, nothing to do with jumping. She was just riding along on a road and she fell off the horse and had a fatal injury. And so I tied that piece of fact in with the painting in a fictional way. I wanted to comment on, you know, the way you were able to approach race in the different timelines because I found it especially jarring when I was revisiting some of the chapter heads because we see Warfield's Jarrett and then Ten Brock's Jarrett and Alexander's Jarrett and then Jarrett Lewis. So I'm glad you were confronted because it's meant to be confronting. And it is a way of saying that this person who I hope that you come to care about very much has no autonomy in his life. He's not even entitled to his own last name until after emancipation. And so finally, without spoiling anything, he does end up with his own last name. But the journey he takes is it's, you know, the the reality of the enslaved black horsemen is they occupied a very rare niche in this brutal system in that their skills 
were absolutely essential to an industry and a pastime that meant more than any other, perhaps, to the white enslaver class. Their thoroughbreds were the source of immense prestige. That prestige depended on the plundered skills and labor of the black trainers and grooms and jockeys. And so they had more autonomy than most, and they were able to travel when they're bringing horses from one state to another, which was very rare for an enslaved person. They were allowed to keep property of their own, which led to many of them being able to buy themselves out of enslavement. But at any time, everything could be taken away. Your right to do this work, or tragically, your family, you could be relocated from one end of the country to the other at the whim of the enslaver. And this is not news, you know, duh, slavery was brutal, but I wanted it to be a kind of a visceral thing within the novel that Jarrett is insecure until he is not. I want to talk about perspective. How do you decide the best point of view for each of your storylines? When do you say, I should write this in first person and it should be in the form of a diary or a letter? Well, generally, I prefer to write in first person. But in this book, I felt that I would be ill-advised to do that. I mean, talk about appropriation. Nobody knows the thoughts in the minds of an enslaved person. So it's in third person where we're watching Jarrett and we have some insight into uh, how he is feeling, but I'm not presuming to know his, you know, inner life in the way that you do when you have a first person protagonist. And um, I can't tell you exactly why I make these choices, just sometimes it just seems like there's a voice I can hear very clearly. And I felt that way about the painter Scott he seemed to me the most accessible mind. And, you know, I could have written Jess in first person too, I suppose, because she's actually based on me as a little girl, nerdy little girl going to the dump to pick up dead things and (laughs) do scientific research. And my mother having 50 million fits when I would come home with some noisome specimen from the dump and she would throw it away. And I'd say, you're gonna ruin my career as a scientist. I read the feature in the New York Times this week, and I stopped and pondered a bit on your quote about journalism versus fiction. And you've touched on that a little bit with following the the line of fact. Your quote is, in journalism, you often know more than you can write. You have an instinct, but you can't use it. But in a novel, that instinct is the story. You get to the line of fact, and then you can take a swan dive into, it might have been like this. So, you know, as we were talking about the painting, why it was in her collection, or, you know, Mm -hmm. Lexington was a real horse. Horse racing was the thing in the 1800s. And I understand the freedom in deciding that, you know, it might have been like this. But you were a journalist before you were a novelist. Do you feel that pull to lean toward revealing the fact rather than imagining what it could be? I just think you're crazy if you don't stick to the line of fact. I can tell you straight up, the most incredible things in this book, the things that you think are implausible are the true things. The stuff I've filled in, you know, that could have happened. (laughs) 
But there's that wonderful quote from Mark Twain, which I've used as the epigraph to my afterword, which is, fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. And so it's the truth that's the most remarkable. It's like the truth is where your jaw drops to your chest and you go, you couldn't make that up. You dedicated this book to your husband, Tony. Tony died unexpectedly while on his own book tour in 2019. And I understand that this was an area where both of your interests overlapped. Is that right? Yes, this was the rare time when we were both researching and our research intersected. So Tony was working on following the travels of Frederick Law Olmsted, who before he became the celebrated landscape architect of Central Park and so many other beautiful green spaces in this country, was a reporter for the New York Times. And he was assigned to go south and figure out what was going on with the divisions in this country prior to the Civil War. And Tony retraced his steps right before the election of Donald J. Trump, asking the same question, what is going on with the divisions in this country and can we bridge them? And so his travels following Olmsted took him through Kentucky and there were characters who Olmsted interviewed who were characters who were connected with the horse Lexington. So we had a wonderful research trip there following our different research paths, but often intersecting with each other. And Tony, of course, is the real historian in the family. So he was incredibly helpful to me ferreting things out of archives. And he is a great charmer of archivists. So I benefited a lot from his help with this book. I want to ask about your experience with horses, because in that same New York Times feature, I learned about how your neighbor offered you her horse for free. And I laughed when you said I should have asked more questions. So your love of horses came before you started writing this book, right? This book actually probably saved the family solvency because... <laughs> <laughs> this was my midlife crisis. You know, some people run out and buy a red sports car. I bought a black pony. <laughs> <laughs> and horse craziness is a syndrome. Many people are familiar with it. It usually strikes girls at a much younger age than it struck me. But once you have it, there's no help for it. It's all you want to think about. So I was completely horse obsessed and I was getting no writing done, which when that's what puts food on the table is a predicament. So Along came this idea and, and the story of Lexington right at the, the most opportune moment possible when I could turn my passion for horses into research for a novel. Are you the type of writer who works on projects from conception to execution independently of the next project? Like, do you know what you're working on next? Do you have an idea for your next project or do you have to completely tie things up before you move on? Oh, I've described this as the phenomenon of going to a party with a date and then seeing the handsome person giving you the eye from across the room. <laughs> but you know you have to leave with the one what brung you. And there's this temptation to think the one across the room is going to be so perfect and so easy and there'll be no complications and then the minute you start with that one, you find out that 
they leave their dirty socks in the kitchen and drop their wet towels on the floor too. And it's going to be just as hard, if not harder than the last one. But it is like a infatuation. You have this idea in your head and that's the one, you know, that you've got to struggle on to the end of this one first. <laughs> that was Geraldine Brooks, author of the novel Horse, which was published by Viking. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. Mm-hmm.